You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Former FBI Director James Comey joins the Post to discuss his latest book, Saving Justice, and his perspective on the political and legal ramifications of a post-Trump Washington. Let's listen. And welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Carol Lenig. I'm a national investigative reporter here at the Washington Post. And I'm privileged to have with me today, former FBI Director Jim Comey. Welcome, Jim. We're gonna talk about your book, Saving Justice, Truth, Transparency, and Trust. But I'm really glad you could join us. Thanks for having me, Carol. It's good to be with you. I think this is our second time in this kind of forum, but a lot of things have happened since we last saw each other. And I think we have to immediately go to the astonishing few days that we've just experienced. Let's go right to some questions about the siege on the Capitol. Tell me first off, what's your reaction? What were you thinking when you saw this unfolding on January 6th? I had two different reactions. One I hope is one that every human being watching it had, and that is I was sickened to see this symbol, this reality of our democracy under armed assault. The second reaction I had was from my career in law enforcement, and that was growing anger that it was happening at all. I was mystified that the Hill wasn't better defended against a threat that seemed obvious. And from your vast experience dealing with incidents not like this, but similar, what do you think are the failures of law enforcement in this case? We have the Capitol Police chief admitting he failed, but other people failed him. We have the FBI saying that they got a warning the day before, but they didn't really put it in people's faces. What's your thought about that failure? It's hard to answer from this vantage point, from the outside and without a comprehensive investigation, but it seems that it's not about a failure of imagination, which is what the 9-11 Commission criticized the government for after 9-11 that we hadn't envisioned the way in which the attack might come because this threat was so obvious and so transparent to the world that it wasn't a failure of imagination. It's just a failure. But the why behind that, why the Capitol didn't have the perimeters it needed and the officers and troops that it needed really has to be figured out through an investigation. I can't tell from here who knew what, when, and who made what decisions based on that information. But we need to find the answers because this threat is not going away. One thing that ties your book so cleanly to this experience is that you view many of the things that you're struggling with, the the failure on the Hill and to notice this threat, with the disturbing instigation of the president in this group, with this group. Do you feel that there is a large group of people in law enforcement, in the FBI, in the, in the police forces that protect us, that didn't view this as a serious threat because these were white, conservative, pro-blue line uh, followers and friends? I don't know. I sure hope that's not the case, but it's a question that has to be asked. Was it something about the way these people looked? that they're not people of color that cause law enforcement to think about them differently? I don't know. I I hope not, but you have to ask, and that's got to be part of the examination that we have to do. And, you know, there have been some discussions about the um, insider threat, lawmakers potentially aiding or encouraging 
Donald Trump Jr., Rudy Giuliani, and the president himself encouraging this, this march, this storm. If you were in charge, would you be looking at whether or not they could be charged with the federal crime of inciting a riot? Yes, I would be. And I assume that the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. are doing just that, looking not just at the point of the attack, who attacked a law enforcement officer, who killed a law enforcement officer, who was involved in that assault, but who was part of it, maybe not physically, but by directing it, funding it, organizing it, and inciting it. You have to take all of that seriously. It's not just about what happened on that hill. If you were the FBI director today, is, are there other steps you feel would be important? And are there things you think we should be prepared for as the public to see in the coming days and months? Well, you'd want to be doing two things at the same time, which I assume that they are doing, looking backwards at the attack and trying to lock up everybody who participated, understand who equipped it, who funded it, who conspired as part of that, but also be looking forward, because the threat is ongoing, to what do we know about threats, not just to the inauguration, but to other parts of the country from people motivated by this sense that they need to bring violence into our democracy in this way. So they have the resources to do both, but I assume around the clock, the Bureau is squeezing sources, sources and their various collection points to understand the threat going forward and to find evidence to, to unwind what went on before. Jim, I want to move now, before we get right to your book, to a, this character who is so central to your first book and is a, a key character in your second book, Saving Justice, and that's Donald Trump. How much do you put this at his feet, the, the undermining of faith in an institution you revere and honestly that I revere? I have covered this department and the AUSAs that work in the trenches. How much of this do you put solely at Donald Trump's feet, or do you think there's something else bigger than that? Well, I think Donald Trump both reflects and furthers a trend in this country. He didn't start it, but he's become the prime mover in the last four years, five years, to destroying norms and institutions that he sees as threats and to trying to destroy the idea that the truth can be found at all, but he is to blame for the flamethrower that's been taken to the institutions of justice over the last four years. Now he has lots of acolytes around him who've echoed the lies, so they've been heard thousands of times by American citizens, but Donald Trump is the one who has tried to burn down the Justice Department, again, with help from people like Bill Barr, but to do that because he saw it as a threat, for the same reason he's tried to burn down the media and portray it as an enemy of the people. I think about some of the things you write about in both of these books, moments when the president did not face consequences, moments when leaders who could have made a difference didn't step into the fray. What is our hope for returning to a normalcy in the next presidency or the presidency after that if, if justice is so easily, easily undermined? If, if the independent objectivity has, has so many forces working against it, if Donald Trump, who wasn't exactly the most organized tactician, could accomplish this, what hope do we have going forward? Well, we have hope because we've done it in the past. 
never more clearly than after Watergate, which I write about in the book, when the Department of Justice had become a tool of Nixon's partisan attack on many parts of our democracy. And so we're reliving that history in a way against a different, very demagogic leader who has poisoned the minds of millions of Americans with his lies. But the path back is similar. Internally, we just need the right leadership in the Department of Justice. And I think the president has selected as his attorney general nominee, the perfect sort of person for that role. That's actually going to be easier to restore the department internally. The harder part's going to be winning back the trust of those who've been surrounded in a fog of lies over the last few years about the FBI and the Department of Justice. And that's hard to change because you can't get people out of a fog of, of fraud by yelling at them and telling them that they're morons or their facts are wrong. You have to do it slowly by showing them what competent, honest leadership looks like. And I'm optimistic that the president, new president will do that and his attorney general and the other leaders that he's selecting. But that takes time. That's a much longer term struggle, even than locking up the miscreants who are trying to tear down our United States Capitol. I really like that conversation and we are gonna to get to that, the future, uh, the as you call it, the long climb up and back. Um, but let me ask you a few more things about Donald Trump. You've said that you don't think he should be impeached in the new presidency. Again, I go to consequences. Why do you view that as unimportant? Why do you view that issue of consequence for Donald Trump, one, something he's never faced, as secondary? Well, first, I, I, I think you misspoke. I definitely thought he should be impeached. I think he should be convicted by the Senate. Uh, and he should be, oh, ideally, before he leaves office, so he's removed, but at a minimum, so he's banned from further office. I also think the local prosecutors in New York who are investigating him for the fraudster he was before he was elected president should continue their work. And if the facts are there, send him to New York State Jail for his crimes. What's a harder question for me, and I wrote about it when I finished the book in the fall and said it was a hard question then and is even harder now, is, is it in the national interest to give Donald Trump center stage in our national life in Washington, D.C., through the drama of United States versus Donald Trump, a prosecution that would take years to complete and that would pull the spotlight away from the competent, honest leadership of new President Biden and put it right where we don't want it to be, in the Klieg lights that Donald Trump so craves. And that's a really hard call because I do think it's important to vindicate the rule of law and pursue a corrupt executive. But here, I actually think it's close, but the better call is likely to be, don't give him that platform. Let him go to Mar-a-Lago and stand on the lawn and yell at cars in his bathrobe, but turn off the Klieg lights, hold him accountable through the impeachment and conviction process and through local prosecution, but let Joe Biden go about the work of healing literally our sick and spiritually sick country. Thank you for clarifying. And I would also add that it's pretty unusual for somebody in your history, in your position, the positions you've held, to let what you view to be a criminal, a person at the center of a multi-year conspiracy, to let that person go. Let me ask you about self-pardoning. The president, as we have re reported, has been considering this. There have been aides around him who are telling him not to do it, that it will be crazy. Do you think it will stand up in court? I don't know. I, it's not been settled. There's no court decision on that question. 
I think the better of the legal scholar argument is that a, a self-pardon would not be effective. But the only way to figure out whether that's true or not would be for the Department of Justice to charge him after he attempts to pardon himself and have a court decide that. So I know our president's not a genius, but even he should be able to figure out that if he pardons himself, he will provoke the Department of Justice almost into being required to prosecute him so that we establish that a corrupt chief executive can't pardon himself. And, and I know, I think I said this before, but I just want to be clear. I think Donald Trump belongs in jail. The hard question for me is, is there a national interest that's better served by not pursuing that incarceration at the federal level in Washington, D.C.? And I, look, I could easily be wrong about that, but I'm trying to figure out what's the best thing for the country, despite my feelings towards this corrupt chief executive. Understood. You know, in the question mark about letting bad guys go, the president has pardoned a host in recent days of white collar criminals, primarily uh, operators or contractors, I guess you'd say, in the Nassau Square murder of, of several foreign nationals, children, women. He's pardoned the largest Medicaid fraudster in U.S. history. Tell me how that hits the DOJ and FBI workforce, who clearly must have spent some time on those cases. And it may have been decades of work when you put all those people together. It sickens them and confirms for them that we're led by a criminal chief executive without any regard, not just for their work, but for how the rule of law is perceived and how it is lived in the United States of America. It's just disgusting. Uh, but they also feel powerless to do anything about it, given the nature of the pardon power. You've talked a little bit about the long and steep road back, what uh, Donald Trump reflects and, and instigates and incites in our country about distrust in fact, distrust in honorable public servants trying to do their job. Tell me a little bit about your thoughts on Merrick Garland and uh, obviously an honorable guy. He was cheered by Republicans and Democrats when he was nominated to the federal bench. He is viewed by people who have different parties as a noble person, but he's been away from the Justice Department for a long time. Is he the person that's going to be able to show his work and win back the uh, trust of this group in the American public that is so distrusting? I think so. I think so. I wrote in the book that I thought we needed a new attorney general in the model of the one that the United States president chose the last time that the Department of Justice needed saving, and that was right after Watergate. So in, after Watergate in 1974, President Ford chose the president of the University of Chicago, a guy named Edward Levy, who people couldn't figure out his politics. He'd never been involved in politics, and that was the reason he was the perfect person. He was a part from the political warfare in the United States. And he hadn't been in the Department of Justice in decades. Very similar situation with Judge Garland, who I don't know personally, but who by reputation is that kind of person who's outside of politics. He knows the department in the ways that matter. He knows its values. He's a very smart person. He'll get up to speed quickly on modern challenges and modern techniques. But he knows what matters most, that the department must be seen as an other in American life. It has to have a blindfold on the Statue of Lady Liberty and not a MAGA hat. It must make decisions that people can trust 
are not with regard to race or creed or color or partisan affiliation. And I, I think he's the kind of person to do that. It's an inspired pick. And you worked with Sally Yates, who was a contender as well. During very tense time, the first weeks and months of the uh, Trump presidency for both of you, um, you both ended up getting removed from your positions. Tell me, if she had been named AG, would you also think she'd have a road forward? Do you think she would have been an inspired pick? Yeah, I think Sally would have been a strong attorney general and maybe still be, will be at some point. A person of deep principle and integrity who knows the department and its work really well. I suspect the challenge for her nomination at this point was that she spoke at the Democratic National Convention. So it would be harder to say that this is a pick entirely outside of politics. But she's somebody who ought to have a bright future in leadership in our Justice Department. In my reporting, sources have told me that a series of federal prosecutors had their resignation papers ready if Donald Trump had been reelected. How broken is our system, Jim, if federal prosecutors who do view themselves as objective sifters and diviners of fact were at that stage, were, were ready to throw in the towel? Well, it just underscores the damage that this president and his second attorney general, Bill Barr, did to that institution, that it could drain the morale of people who had devoted their lives to trying to do good through the institution of justice. And so it shows you how consequential this last election was for our country and for the institutions that are its bedrock. We came very close to a situation where a whole lot of good people would have headed for the exits. Now I hope the reverse is going to happen. A whole lot of good people did not come into government or left government after Donald Trump was elected president. We need them back at all levels and in all parts of the government. You write with a lot of passion about Chris Ray, the man who replaced you, and, and you feel he has a job now to speak in a way that he was prevented from speaking. How worried should we be in the American public that Chris Ray was constrained from speaking the truth as the FBI director, and that his only mission was to cower and to try to protect his people, try to protect the, the mission that they were pursuing and not speak up to the president, uh, speak truth to power. How worried should we be that that happened? I don't think you should worry about the person. Chris Ray is a person of integrity and principle and great inner strength. I think we should all worry about the circumstances in which he found himself, which is needing to protect an institution and the rule of law in the face of a lawless, dishonest president. And so I don't doubt that he had to make tactical judgments about when to press against Attorney General Barr or when to press against the president. And that's a circumstance, that's not of his doing. I think he was doing wise things and being careful about how he approached it. But that to me speaks to why it was such an enormous mistake for this country to have a corrupt chief executive. That, that's not Chris Ray's fault. Now, I've been asking you a lot of questions about your book, especially at the end of your book. Let me talk a little bit about the beginning of your book. I wanna hear some of these examples. You talk about key moments where you had to basically grow in the job as a prosecutor, as a baby prosecutor and as a not so baby prosecutor. Talk a little bit about your choice in prosecuting Mr. Fleet. I was a junior prosecutor in the Southern District of New York and I was assigned a drug case that was ready for trial. And there were two defendants. 
one of whom was clearly guilty and deeply involved in this kilo cocaine drug conspiracy. And the other, a guy named Henry, was a tangential figure in this case. All he had done was introduce a DEA informant to the source and doesn't appear he got paid for it. He wasn't involved in the deal. And so it was a situation where he was technically guilty because he knew the DEA source was looking to buy drugs. And so he introduced this to a fellow Colombian who he knew was a drug dealer. And that was it for him. When I got the case, I saw that he was guilty, but I felt deeply uncomfortable with it, kind of as a moral matter. This just didn't seem right. This guy was going to go to jail for a long stretch of time. And he was so low on the totem pole, in fact, not even on the pole, that he had nobody he could cooperate against. It just didn't feel right to me. And so I was new, so I went to my supervisor and I explained that, said, I just feel wrong about this. And they asked, does he technically meet the requirements of the statute? And I said, yes. And they said, well, it's your job to prosecute it. And they ordered me to prosecute it. And I didn't have the courage, the wisdom to say, no, I'm not gonna do that. I became part of the Department of Justice only to do those things I believe were right. And this feels wrong to me. So either reassign it or let me dismiss the case against Henry. Instead, I went and I tried the case against these two guys and the jury convicted the clearly guilty guy and the jury, I don't know what they read in me, but I did my job as ordered and they acquitted Henry as they should have. They were a voice of American justice. They were wiser and maybe a little stronger than I could be. And I learned a searing lesson from that, that part of my oath was never to make an argument I didn't believe in, never to take a position I wasn't comfortable with and to advocate for justice because my client was not the DEA agents on the case. My client was not Rudy Giuliani, who was then the U.S. attorney looking to run for mayor. So there was no way they were going to want to dismiss drug cases in the Bronx. My client was this idea of justice. And I couldn't ever forget that. And so it was a painful lesson for me. One I remember even now that I'm an old guy. So I wrote about it. I do enjoy a lot of the parts of your book where you take us behind the scenes in cases that I either was tracking or writing about myself as a reporter and I didn't know everything you were experiencing in the real time. Tell me what the quandaries were for you in the case after 9-11 of the Jordanian suspect that a judge was, was saying you didn't handle properly and probably should be released. You decided that you would argue this case before the Supreme Court, argue the appeal. Tell me why you chose to do that. It's sort of a little bit of tension hog, right? People will accuse you of that. But why did you decide to do it? I became U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, Manhattan, uh, by complete accident, without ever applying, without even thinking about being part of that job. They called me out of the blue when I was an assistant U.S. attorney in Richmond, Virginia. The Bush administration asked me to go to New York. And I knew New York had a tradition of fierce independence, where it was of the Department of Justice, but never entirely. It saw itself as something apart. And I actually thought that was in the, in the interest, not just of the district, but of the country. And it was a tradition that went back to 1906, when a guy named Henry Stimson became Roosevelt's pick, Theodore Roosevelt's pick to be U.S. attorney and changed the culture of the office to be fiercely independent. And I found out over being an assistant U.S. attorney there and from going in as this surprise pick to be U.S. attorney, that part of the way in which U.S. attorneys had maintained the independence 
was that they all had throw weight of a certain sort, right? They were a Rudy Giuliani with all kinds of political connections or others who had been real superstars in the legal community. And so they could stand up for the district in a way this imposter coming from a career AUSA job in Richmond couldn't. And so I was very worried about protecting the independence, especially from Maine Justice, Headquarters of Justice. So one of the ways I chose to do that was that I, I would insert myself into the breach when Maine Justice tried to take some of our cases. And that's what happened in that circumstance, a terrorism case that the Department of Justice announced they were gonna send one of their lawyers in to argue the appeal in the case. And to stop that from happening and to show that the Maine Justice didn't take over the Southern District's work, I said, you know what, I'm gonna personally argue this appeal. And so I did. I wasn't doing it because I wanted to argue appeals. I had done plenty of those, but I thought it was important that I step in. For the same reason, I tried to generate press attention in the Southern District of New York for me, not to run for office, but so that I could manufacture throw weight. I wasn't famous, I wasn't rich, I didn't have a, you know, a famous family of long lineage, I had a wonderful family, but no, nobody with any connections. And I could sort of build my own juice to protect the district in that way. And so I tried to do that. Jim, do you think this is the beginning of when you start to realize the press is part of your throw weight? You know, people in my business are, are salivating for the inside details and the scoop. And, you know, you have been accused of using the media to their benefit, no doubt, and to yours to rail against this president. You know, your role in, in the information that got out about how you were pressed for loyalty. Do you think this moment uh, with, for example, going to the media about the Jordanian suspect was when you started to realize that some press coverage could really pull people in your direction, even if it was for the right purposes, even if it was for justice? I think it was both that I thought about it slightly differently than that, and that it was earlier than that that I realized it. I figured out when I was first a prosecutor that it was important to understand who your client was and to never take a case you don't believe in and to be truthful at all times, bedrock principles. But it wasn't until I went to Virginia and I was in charge of the Richmond U.S. Attorney's Office that I realized that that wasn't enough, that to earn the trust of the American people was everything for the Department of Justice because you couldn't be effective without their trust and confidence in you. And that to facilitate that trust, you had to do the right thing at all, all times. But you also had to communicate with them, show them your work and tell them what you're doing and why you're doing it. And the way to do that is through the media. And so I came to realize as a fairly low level supervisor of the Richmond office that we had to have an engagement with the media because they were the people through whom we spoke to the American people. So I didn't see it as trying to use the media or trying to use the media for personal gain. I actually came to believe what I still believe is that if you're gonna work in the justice system at a leadership level, you must communicate with the American people through the, the media or you're never gonna earn their trust. That as I say in the book with the subtitle, trust comes from truth plus transparency. You have to have both. Your, your point about showing your work is, is uh, resonating with me because I think the undermining of the press also is causing us to reassess. We need to show our work more and more. What are the specific things in a Justice Department case, an FBI investigation, 
that you never would have talked about before, and I'm not talking about Hillary Clinton's emails here, what are the things that AG Merrick Garland is going to have to talk about and U.S. attorneys around the country are going to have to talk about that they never felt comfortable doing before to show their work and build trust? I think most importantly, in connection with what the new administration, Justice Department, decides to do about crimes committed in the Trump administration by people in government, including people in near government. I assume they will take a look at a Rudy Giuliani. Whatever they decide to do, and I'm not telling them what to do, they have to be transparent with the American people about that to earn their trust. And so I think that Judge Garland and the U.S. attorneys are going to have to redouble their efforts to lean into the transparency piece. I know there are people who are going to tell the truth, but you're not going to get to trust without also giving transparency to the American people. Gerald Ford did an extraordinary thing after he decided not to pursue criminal prosecution of Richard Nixon after Watergate. He went by himself to the House of Representatives, the President of the United States, and sat alone at a witness table and explained to the American people why. And I don't know how they will approach these prosecutions, how they'll approach the question of Donald Trump, but whatever they decide to do, they have to share the why with the American people to generate that trust. It's a really interesting challenge. Uh, it's a very daunting one. I want to thank you for the time you've given us, Jim. Uh, I'm going to ask you one last question, and it can be just one phrase. What's next for Jim Comey? Uh, not this. <laughs> not, I am excited. I mean, I love you, but I'm excited about uh, not being part of public life any longer. I'm looking forward to January 21st, which coincidentally is my first day teaching at Columbia University. And so that's what I'm going to do next. Fair enough. Thank you for the time. I think you made us some news and you answered some really interesting questions. I appreciate it. And I want to thank all of our audience at Washington Post Live. Thanks for your interest, your keen watching. Thanks for being here. We'll look forward to the next time. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.